Hello and welcome to Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carrie Smith, and I'm here with my co-host, Carter Laren. And you're watching Cafefe Break, which is one of the live shows we do on Mondays and Fridays. Hello, Carter. Are you here? <laughs> there. I was waiting for Beverly okay. to add me because she was going to be the in charge. But look what I get for letting Beverly be in charge. Yeah. Who knows? I just look, we have a couple of announcements up front and we have a very special guest who I just learned is actually here. I thought he was going to be delayed, but he's here. So firstly, there's a construction happening on my house right out front. So there'll probably be noise and I'll have to let you take it over. My other camera's not working. So I'm back on the laptop cam and I'm disassembling all my books and packing everything up. So everything just looks chaotic here. And uh, I don't even have a new baby. Like well, I'm going to try and mute when I can hear her screaming. Uh, but if I don't always do that, then I apologize. Uh, but, you know, it happens. She's, you know, just a couple weeks old. Um, all right. Let's do, let's remind people you can watch us on unsafespace.com. Always, we always live stream there. So uh, you can check it out. We're also on Utreon and Odyssey. And we have um, some sort of waterfowl Twitter account. That's ours, underscore unsafe space. Uh, and thank you to everyone for supporting the show. Everyone who does it financially, you can join them at unsafespace.com slash, I think it's support, whatever. There's a button. Uh, you can support us there. That allows us Donate. to keep going. Yep. Um, we also have book club coming up this month. We return to mm -hmm. fiction and we are reading The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, which I would say, again, just to let you know, don't be influenced by the Showtime woke interpretation of this book. It's actually, I think, a great book. So I, I hope everybody who's interested in dystopian fiction joins us this month and you can find out more info at unsafespace.com on the book club page. It's always free to join and participate. Okay. And, and the subscribe button, oh, yeah. uh, the subscribe button is mandatory. We just want to remind you that's mandatory, but everything else is voluntary. <laughs> yeah. You must right. subscribe. We've given up on the voluntary. Yeah. Our patients ran out. And, uh, you know, we tried the carrot. We tried the carrot. If you don't subscribe, nobody else's subscription works. So you have to do it now. Uh, or will, you'll get fired. Welcome to Tony Kennett. Our special guest today is this is this guy is really brave. I'm very excited to have him on the show, Carter. I just saw a video he did about CRT in the classroom. And he's part of, on Twitter, the Chalkboard Review which is by educators for educators to push back against some of the woke ideology in the classroom. Welcome, Tony. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me on, guys. Hey, welcome, Tony. Uh, you're, you're the co-founder of that website, right? I think. I am. Daniel Buck and I founded that about almost a year ago on November 23rd of last year after a couple months of planning, and it has exploded since then. Actually, before all of this happened, we were up to 18,000 monthly readers. Uh, which for a small organization with no outside funding, that's that's pretty cool. Uh, now it's much different, and uh, I don't think every, anything's ever going to be the same. Well, that's tell, good. <laughs> yeah, tell us a little about that. What's unfolded for you in the past week? Because I just saw. Actually, should we start Carter by showing people if they haven't seen it? Can we show a clip? I was going to say, yeah. Can we just show show? It's a short video. Let's just show the audience if they haven't seen it. Um, Beverly, do you want to yank it up here and? Press play. There you go. I'm the science coach and admin in the largest public school district in Indiana. I'm in dozens of classrooms a week, so I see exactly what we're teaching our students. When we tell you that schools aren't teaching critical race theory, that it's nowhere in our standards, that's misdirection. We don't have the quotes and theories as state standards per se, 
we do have critical race theory in how we teach. We tell our teachers to treat students differently based on We tell our students that every problem is a result of white men and that everything Western civilization built is racist. Capitalism as a tool of white supremacy. Those are straight out of Kimberly Crenshaw's main points, verbatim in critical race theory, the writings that formed the movement. This is in math, history, science, English, the arts, and it's not slowing down. If students of color have lower reading scores, it's because of inequity. Therefore, we take from the white students and give to the color students. That's Richard Delgado, straight out of CRT and introduction. All teaching is political, with reality and facts taking the back seat. That's Dr. Gloria Ladson-Billings, who outlined how she saw critical race theory flushed out in public schools in 1995. When schools tell you that we aren't teaching critical race theory, it means one thing. Go away and look into our affairs no further. It isn't about transparency. It isn't about cultural relevance. It's race essentialism painted to look like the district cares about students of color. We call it anti-racism, so you feel bad if you disagree with our segregationist pedagogy. It's taking advantage of kids' vulnerability and parents' inactivity to preen over social snake oil schemes designed to create division. Parents, when we tell you critical race theory isn't taught in our schools, we're lying. Keep looking. Very well put, sir. Thank you. Uh, video was a little choppy there for a minute, so sorry about that. But uh, yeah, very well put. Um, can, I just, can I just start by, by asking a question? I don't... I'm not a teacher. I don't know a lot of teachers, but the teachers that I do know don't strike me as the kind of people who are who would be reading uh, esoteric critical theories and thinking about how to apply them. They would act, they would actually fall into a category of people that I imagine are also indoctrinated by other people and told this is what you say. This is how to be good. Go do these things. That's is a that pretty correct. Yeah, that's a pretty accurate statement. I mean, if you've spent any time at all on public university campuses, on a lot of even private university campuses, the education faculty at these colleges uh, drill in you from day one that far more important than learning how to teach, far more important than learning the content area you're supposed to be an expert in, far more important than anything that actually makes a good teacher is the social preening and posturing and how you have a need to advocate for all of these people that you've oppressed your whole life and all of these other horrible things that you've done personally. And so a lot of teachers, they come out of uh, public colleges and state universities and they're all for it, man. They're, I call them mommy teachers. They want to be mom. They want to shelter and harbor all term. of these poor kids. It's just, it's so sad. So there are some, although I got to tell you, there are, I, the, according to the data, about one out of three teachers is, is very excited to be on the left, according to all of the survey data that we have. Some of them are very, very excited to do their social justice printing in the classroom. Right. Yes. Right. Can you can you explain a little for people who may not be familiar with uh, CRT praxis? Like, what's the difference between when they when they say, and I've seen the media over the past year start to say, uh, critical race theory is not even in the classroom. Critical race theory doesn't even exist, uh, or it's just in law schools. Can you explain the difference between? sitting a student down and saying, this is critical race theory, and then, or actually teaching concepts from it. Right. So this is one of my favorite things. So education is made up of two basic things in the classroom. You have curriculum, which is the material. So for example, if I was teaching my students about D-Day in 1944, this would be the curriculum, the material I would walk my students through in studying D-Day. However, there is also something called pedagogy, or some are calling it praxis, I suppose. Pedagogy is how something is taught. So it's the lens with which I teach. So for example, if I was teaching about D-Day, 
I can teach about D-Day a lot of different ways. I can teach about atoms and molecules in science a lot of different ways. And I can use specific examples. I can lead my students to answers. I can introduce discovery environments. I can take the horrific Dewey model and just have them lead the lesson. There's a ton of different ways that you can teach. What critical race theory does and how it's incorporated in a classroom with a very few exceptions is usually not injected straight. As you said, this is critical race theory. Most of the time, it's more uh, actually walking your students through uh, any situation, any societal problem, any history example with now, why did the white people cause this problem? Why did the United States keep so many people under the jackboot of their imperialist fascism? And yes, it is exactly as Marxist as it sounds for such a long time. That's how critical race theory is used in every single subject as I outlined in the video. So it's used to set up a framework of premises uh, through which everything is viewed and measured. Right. So everyone has a worldview, right? This is one of the things that we debated back in the 90s. A lot of people think this is the first time that we've debated something political in schools. No, <laughs> we had the creationism and evolutionism debate back in the 90s. And what everyone basically came to was that everyone's got a worldview. Everyone is going to look through a lens in order to observe things that we can't pin down that you weren't there to observe. Critical race theory is a lens. Now, Unfortunately, for the people who support critical race theory, uh, the founders have admitted that they've made up a lot of historical narrative and facts like Nicole Hannah-Jones and Howard Zinn have done to really manipulate this narrative. Gloria Ladson Billings talks about how the narrative is more important than any historical facts. I'm glad you brought that up because it's something that I think a lot of normal people don't understand could be possibly true. Um, like it's you don't think of, oh, this person has a Ph.D. in whatever it might be, sociology or history or whatever, or English, it's hard to imagine that they really honestly and truly believe that correlation to reality is secondary to uh, adherence to a narrative that has some greater purpose in their mind. I think that's true. It's, it's really weird seeing a lot of administrators discuss this. I've been hit repeatedly over the last couple of days for where are your receipts? Yeah, you've shared screenshots, but where are the videos of teachers actually teaching this in class? And my response has so far been, um, we as the district office, as the racial equity office, which is adjacent to me and, and has far too much power in the Indianapolis public school system, we tell teachers what to teach. I am personally responsible for 31,000 students' science curriculum, and they really do not like that I don't waste all of our time worrying about how to use critical race theory to engender racial equity. Uh, so much so that actually in the science text adoption this year, they've put a racial equity team behind me uh, to double check all of my work, and it's, it's getting quite silly. Wow. How many people are on that team? Can I ask that? I don't know. They won't let me know who any of them are. This is actually something I saw someone in the comments mention this. Uh, Frank McCormick for Chalkboard Heresy. He's a fellow at Chalkboard Review. He's one of my guys. And so is Daniel Buck up in Wisconsin. And the three of us, uh, kind of your three conservative whistleblowers here, have been laughing just uproariously at the science text adoption process in Indianapolis. It's not enough that I've read all of these books cover to cover over the last two years. It's not enough that I have, you know, pages of APA cited papers and that I've really tried to create a textbook adoption team that is able to look at all of this and get the best materials for our kids. No, they have to slap a racial equity team on it because you can't have the white guy, you know, the, you can't <laughs> yeah. have the, the Christian white conservative, you know, picking the science curriculum. Oh no, the horror. Meanwhile, so I'm, I'm willing to bet. I'll just say, cause based on these people, I used to be in this world. I don't know if you know our, our show history and my personal history, but I was, 
I pushed social justice for about two decades. I picked it up in college like a disease. Most kids get Sorry. a BD in college. Carrie got social justice. I experimented oh, with no. social justice. Um, <laughs> but, but I'm willing to bet that most of the people who are pushing it and even that team that they put behind you, I'm willing to bet they're not as educated on the, the source material as you are, that they're not as familiar with it. That's been, that's my, just my, that's guess. been my favorite thing. I, so I've spent eight years studying critical race theory. Uh, when I, I went to a small Christian university and I had a professor that was uh, very, um, very intent on us knowing every single piece of paper that we disagreed with. My senior year, I actually worked for Governor Scott Walker in Wisconsin as a junior education policy advisor. And I went on lunch breaks and in afternoons to sit in and audit Gloria Ladson Billings classes because I wanted to know exactly what they thought. I didn't want to stand up and regurgitate the same talking points. I wanted to know. And if you go to the chalkboardreview.com, we have a critical race theory toolkit and we outline all of the quotes. We have all read the majority of works from Crenshaw, Ladson Billings, from Delgado, from Marcuse, from uh, Derek Bell, because I want to know what they have to say. And my favorite thing is when someone who has not read any of these books, but has listened to Rachel Maddow preen for a minute or worse, Joy Reid. Uh, they're like, well, you don't understand what you're talking about. It's like, oh, yes, I must have imagined studying this for eight years and writing a subthesis on why it's horrible for the Hispanic community. By the way, when you said Rachel Maddow or worse, I thought he can't think of anyone worse, but you did. That was very good. Oh, thanks. Um, it's one of my uh, specialties. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how let's break this down for people who I, I think I think for a lot of people, the idea that you could shoehorn this kind of ideology into science is a little bit hard to grasp. How how would one take basic chemistry or pick a science, whatever, uh, how would one take that and present it in such a way so as to um, promulgate these ideas? I had an email from a teacher last year, and they were very upset because they wanted to teach their students about the models of atomic theory. So there were these guys that knew things were made up of smaller things. But it took them a while over the years to actually boil down that it's atoms and then it's not just atoms, but it's a nucleus and electrons. And then it's not just that, but it's protons, neutrons and electrons. And, you know, there's a progression of our understanding. There was a problem for this specific teacher, though. She saw they were all white and she emailed me very, very upset. Uh, all of these teachers are white. I can't tell my students that there have to be other cultures, other individuals that postulated this at this certain time, like. What about, and she, she, she asked if there were any South American or Central American examples of people. And I said, no, no, there weren't any South or Central American individuals postulating atomic theory at this time. They were all in civil wars with each other at the time. I mean, like <laughs> there weren't a lot of scholars thinking about that. That was one of the beautiful things about Western civilization and really the Catholic church's influence on it. Even though I personally am not Catholic, I have great respect for the model of the Protestant and Catholic work ethic that means your society is strong enough so you can set individuals aside to research and push everyone forward. And that's kind of history revisionism in science is a big thing. Um, racial quotas, uh, pretending that the reason there aren't more black women in the STEM field is because there's some mystery shadow person going up to a seventh grade black lady and saying, you don't want to go into STEM. You want to write poetry or something like, no, that's, that's not true, but that doesn't stop a lot of STEM and science curriculum developers from saying, one of the reasons that we're developing this is so that we can make sure there are more individuals of color and uh, individuals with 
traditionally female organs because you know you, you got to change the you can't say women <laughs> yeah. now because that's sexist and lgbtqist and all that stuff but that's kind of how it appears in science so just like they just like they do for short fat jewish kids with the nba right same thing oh it's <laughs> it's, it's it's wild it's it's really crazy and i saw someone from the comment talking about uh, tell them about the manhattan project and tell them about uh, the many situations that the United States provided in which we pulled in a very amazing multicultural team, you know, about the strong black women that worked in the on the projects at NASA. There are a lot of excellent explanations of people of color and women doing amazing things in the progress of science. But what's important is what they brought to the science, not what their genitals and their melanin content are. Exactly. And the, and that this whole problem with history or revisionism, you said it's like they want to correct what they perceive to be a perceived problem of racial bias, uh, leading to there being no black people in this in this group of of thinkers or scientists that you're talking about. So they're like, oh, it's all white men. That must be racism. Okay, now we have to go and chair the the solution to this is to cherry pick people and try and fit people in there who, in some cases, depending on what you're talking about may not even have existed. It's like they're looking to, they're lo looking based just on the race. You don't fix a problem of racial bias by applying racial bias. Like, that's what's really weird here because I mean, you, if you look at, uh, all right, let's take, you know, Eastern Europe, let's dive into Russia. Let's talk about like Slavic dominant culture here. No one looks at Slavic culture at a certain point in history and says, wow, it seems like the people of Russia always tended and leaned towards Slavic based cultural ideas. No one is like, well, that's because the Slavs were trying to keep out everyone else. No, no, there wasn't a, a group of Slavs in the media that was like, all right, any Belarusian things that come in, we kick them out. No, <laughs> the, the like the the group where the group where there are the most people sociologically tend to have culture drift their way because there are more of those people. It doesn't mean there's a boogeyman who's keeping other groups out. That's that's not how the free market works. So Tony, tell me, tell me, how did you get started? You said you guys started Chalkboard Review a year ago. What compelled you to start talking about this and how did you meet some of the other founders? Well, uh, after I got out of college, so I had been Governor Walker's junior education policy advisor. Uh, have either of you two ever seen the movie Hoosiers, perhaps the basketball movie? I have, but it's Carrie been has. quite a while. Yeah. I have. Okay, so that memory. school, that school, okay. that famous gym, that's where I went to go teach first. And I got teacher of the year my first two years. Uh, my students liked me. My parents liked me. Things were going really, really well. And so I went and I got my master's degrees from Ball State University, a master's of education in curriculum development and one in education technology. And it was horrible. I, I learned so little. I was basically self-taught. Um, I was it's lectured by individuals over my privilege and how even though I spoke fluent Spanish, I shouldn't be allowed to work with the Hispanic community. And that was really weird. And it bothered me. So I started writing political commentary, actually, for an outfit uh, by Cassie Dillon called The Lone Conservative. And that kind of led one thing to another. I started writing for other outlets. And uh, after a while, uh, Daniel Buck, who was a the head columnist over at Lone Conservative, he suggested that uh, one out of three teachers are on the left. And I said, yes, I've seen that statistic by Ed Week. And he said, well, that means that two out of three aren't. And all of the parents around the country believe that one out of three teachers are really three out of three. There's like no one in education who's on their side anymore. And he's like, you know, if you or I write for Ed Week or Chalkbeat or one of the other mainstream union and university funded education publications, mm -hmm. he said, then our stuff's going to get turned down. And that was true. I've had pieces rejected from some of these major publications because 
even apolitical education pieces were too individualist was the word that was wow. used in describing my pieces because uh, it wasn't collectivist enough in describing how to help the Hispanic community um, bring in uh, like some of the dads and like their successful work in contracting and drywalling into like my class. And they're like, no, that's racist. And that's stereotypical. It's like, okay, <laughs> they were the ones who wanted to come in and the kids loved them. Anyway, yeah. So we, uh, there's just so much. Why nonsense. can't you work in STEM? Yeah. Dad? I, uh, how dare you <laughs> provide for your family and enjoy your work and have much more money than I do. Uh, so it was so interesting. Finally, he says, well, we should start a publication that actually shows parents, the community and everyone what's going on in education. And we get all of these teachers to write for us. And we don't decide whether an article is good enough for us or not, whether it has the right views. We publish it. We do a little copy editing because, you know, you, you miss a you misspell a word. The grammar is not quite right somewhere. But we publish the piece. And then we let our audience decide, the parents, community members, other teachers, whether it's a good article or not. And it was wildly successful. Uh, it took us eight months of planning, met some other individuals um, that, that I'd worked with in the past, got in some other people on the projects, launched with an article from James Lindsay um, and also an interview with Max Eden. And now we have a podcast called Teacher's Lounge where I bring people in education on, parents, teachers, uh, all kinds of interesting education-affiliated people. And I, we just talk about what's going on. And our big driving thing right now is encouraging teachers to talk to parents and be very honest with them because you will be amazed at people are like, well, who's going to support the teachers? You know, and they're looking for the union. They're looking for community bureaucrats. You know, they're looking for the district to support them. My biggest supporters were parents. They just, they were, they were awesome. Uh, whether I was in the very white rural Indiana or whether I was in inner city Milwaukee or in suburban Indianapolis, where it was very ethnically diverse, my parents were wonderful. I would give them my concerns. I'd tell them what was going on inside of schools. Uh, and I would just be very candid and honest with them. Things I liked, things I hated. They were so great. And I think that that's what we need to restore because when the parents and the teachers are working together, district does not stand a chance. Yeah. Nor should they. So you said one out of three teachers are on the left. That is according to an Ed Week survey in 2017. All right. Let's assume we, we can take it at face value for now. It's fine. Sure. I just wanted uh, to say where it came from because of the whole, oh, where are your receipts? Sure. Uh, but what percentage are rough? I mean, do you think are kind of neither right or left just kind of will go with the flow, right? We'll just do whatever. Cause it seems like that one third is pretty loud and in control. So I like to think of it like this, and this has been my experience in many different schools that I've been to school board meetings, et cetera. Let's say the school has a hundred teachers. About 10 of those are going to be your really screaming loud leftists who are going to charge down the parents and call parents everything. And they're your really loud, angry leftists. You have another 10 to 15 who want to be in the friend group and want to support them. You know, they're like some of the local union reps and people who really appreciate what they're doing. Um, they don't, they're not loud, but they, you know, they really support it. And then you have, I would say about 50 or 60 teachers that just want to teach. They just want to teach. Um, I like to think of them like George Feeney, uh, from boy meets world that just comes in every day. He teaches his class. He teaches, you know, what he knows. He works with the parents and then he sends the kid on. Now, there, of course, are some conservatives in that that bottom margin as well that are more active conservatives. And I'm not suggesting that there are as many conservatives as people on the left. But that central core group is becoming increasingly fed up. I mean, if I just to be very candid, they're getting pretty pissed. 
And they should right. because their livelihood is being ruined by racial equity trainings and professional developments. We need serious licensure reform in education. People say the reason teachers are leaving is because they're not being paid. Uh, it's not that states aren't giving schools the money. Schools are misspending the money. Mm -hmm. They're spending, oh goodness, IPS has spent oodles, canoodles, and toaster strudels of money on bringing in racial equity teams and professional development that are super and positive and wonderful. And teachers are really upset. Kids are getting in fights. Um, there's an actual an Instagram I follow. <laughs> it's one of our high schools and it's just videos of the fights. That's horrible. They won't wow. expel the kids. Our, our district won't expel any of the students. Um, I just was in a meeting where uh, one of the principals uh, from uh, actually a, a lady that I really like. Uh, she's a wonderful woman um, from Christmas Attics High School, which is one of our bigger schools. They made nine expulsion requests to keep their school safe to the district. Hey, please, can we expel these nine kids? The district approved none of them. So that's what's causing the teacher shortage. They're done. They're tired. What's of the it. reasoning? Oh, it's not parents. It's it's because districts aren't doing the work. They're wasting our time on racial do-goodedness that's not even helping kids of color. Like it's not helping black and Hispanic kids read. Mm -hmm. It's not doing anything. In fact, it's it's ostracizing Hispanic kids. It's this the soft bigotry of low expectation for black mm -hmm. kids. Oh, if we didn't give you all of these resources, you wouldn't have a chance without us. That white saviorism that's so yep. popular on the progressive left. And then, I mean, honestly, you have a lot of uh parents of, of white, black, and Hispanic students that are bailing their kids out of the district at ninth grade. Um, but what do we say in our racial equity meetings? We say, well, well that's white flight. You know, that's, that's teachers. Right. You're just not it's being racism. inclusive enough. Mm -hmm. uh, you're, you know, you're just not doing enough. And so that's, that's why teachers are leaving. They're just like, no, I'm done. I'm not going to sit here with the kid that just stabbed a kid 15 minutes ago and is now back in my room. And all my other kids are terrified. And instead of me teaching, what do you want me to do? You want me to be a big racial essentialism advocate. Peace. Right. I'm out. Yeah. Right. Can you can you explain what Carter is asking? Like the 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 reasoning that they give behind refusing to discipline students, or for there to be any repercussions for uh, disruptive behavior in the classroom? I've sure. heard from teachers in South Carolina. My that's my original home state. That. Uh, they're being told that students have other ways of learning and different, uh, an emotional, some kind of score that they have. That, uh, do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. So uh, social emotional learning is a very interesting bird. Okay. And I, I'm going to take kind of an unusual approach here and say that social emotional learning can be good. Um, but that's like saying that chicken can be a really good meal. Oh well, yeah, chicken can be a great meal if someone cooks it right. But it, you know, there are some modern iterations of chicken that are absolutely horrible. For example, I personally despise chicken parmesan. I know that's that's terrible. And everyone <laughs> no, I'm with you on chicken I parmesan. Hate chicken I parmesan. hate chicken parmesan. I yeah, kind for, of agree. Look, like, all for three me, of us. For me, social emotional learning has become like the horrible bastardization of what it's set out to be. So you'll go out and you'll say, look, you know, we're, we're babying our students. We're coddling them. And then they'll say, well, um, actually, we set it out just to, to make things easier for kids that come from really rough environments. I came from a single parent home where I, I did a lot of, of self-investment in my life and I had very tough discipline standards. Social emotional learning would have empowered me to be a giant jerk, which I was by the end of high school. I'm just very thankful that I had a, a good church family who kind of kept me on the right track and a strong grandmother and, and father and, and mom who like it, things ended up working out. Um, but as far as what's going on right now, it, the reason we aren't suspending a lot of students for, for violent things is because that encourages the prison, the school to prison pipeline. So there, there are studies, there's data out there, um, and it's it's very biased data 
that suggests that if you were suspended or expelled in school, you have a much higher chance of being in prison when you're an adult. Right. Yeah. I, don't <laughs> I mean, that. I don't care what yeah. color you are. Like if you stab kids and you're in high school um, and you didn't, you never got that solved, you know, you're still, you know, you didn't go through any character growth. Um, you know, you don't have someone to invest in you and, or you just choose as an individual, we can choose, you choose to make bad decisions. Yeah. If you go and stab people again, yeah, you're going to end up in jail. Shocking. You know, the girl who drew horses in middle school and didn't stab anybody went through high school and now is, uh, working at a finance firm in Indianapolis, never stabbed anyone, never got, you know, suspended and is now not in jail. I mean, I, that just seems obvious to, you know, common sense, but it's also, they're focusing Instead of focusing on the behavior that leads to the suspension and saying, hey, if you start fights in high school, you're more likely to end up in prison. They're just looking at the the repercussions of the punishment, the attended punishment. And they're saying if you're suspended in school, then it leads to that's not that's like saying that's like saying if you're um, you know, if you get in trouble for murdering cats when you're a child, you're more likely to end up a serial killer. It's like, no, but the behavior is the murdering of cats. It's not getting in trouble for it. It's like, like, it's the wrong cause. This is what I really wanted to loop back to because we have just found out what critical race theory pedagogy looks like in the classroom. It's the lens. We found it. It's all about the cause. So we're suggesting that what we have all of this data. Oh my goodness. A lot of black students that got expelled are now in prison. What's the cause? The cause is racism. It's this structural systemic problem that's funneling black students into prison because that's how we built the system. That's exactly how it's done. And so the reason and the rationale and how we treat our students, which is very differently by color, the reason and rationale and how we write curriculum and how we work with our teachers and how we work with our coaches and how we define our spaces and our accomplishments. Indianapolis is separated into racial affinity groups that are while voluntary sponsored by the school officially. Um, and this, this segregation for the point of equity is, is horrible, but it's what happens when you come to the conclusion that the cause of societal woes that we have and the problems that we have are due to systemic racism, which is exactly where critical race theory fits into all of this. Right. Um, I, I just want to circle back to something you said about the funding, like what, what these schools are doing with their money. Because it reminded me of something that I saw on Twitter today. Um, do you remember the Loudoun County School District? They were recently in the news because no, how could a, I not? Yeah, an alleged alleged rape. Um, and uh, Paul Rossi uh, posted this on Twitter. They paid five hundred thousand dollars to this equi- equity collab, which is uh, equity collaborative, which is uh, I guess a private entity that teaches teachers how to apply critical race theory in schools mm. and he's got some videos here where he he, uh, he wait I he's from remind this. me he's from what organization um he was a Loudoun pro- county oh okay yeah. i was talking to paul this morning he's also one of our chalkboard review dudes cool oh yeah yeah so but paul paul i'm looking at paul's twitter right and mm-hmm. paul right paul posted this twitter uh or this these videos from Loudoun county and it's equity collaboration is the company that I guess was hired. They were paid half a million dollars. And some of the stuff that this guy says, he kind of admits on the video. Openly. Kind of. He no, openly he's, he's blatant on the about video. It. Yeah. Yeah. He says basically uh, schools aren't good for actually disseminating information or teaching. Um, internet's better for that. Uh, so he's kind of 
like it's the best argument for defunding public schools I've ever heard in my life. He like makes this argument and then he kind of says, but what do we have? And yeah. it's like, okay, well, we have to do something because we have an infrastructure and people on salary. So what, what do mm -hmm. we have? What do we offer? What's our product? And he uses something, the product that he says, I think is indicative of how these people like to um, use sleight of hand to get things through. It's a, it's very vague. He says, well, our product is relationships. Oh, relation. We have right. relationship with students. Mm. Um, and that's, you could drive a truck through that hole. Like, like, oh like, yeah. What, oh, what is it could be anything could be relationship. That's how you can kind of put anything you want through that door that he's opened up. Oh, this um, is such a common trope in the left. It's so common. It's so this, this all boils down to the idea that it's very Dewey and a student will not learn unless they feel safe and loved and respected and all of these other really good verbs and adjectives and adverbs. And, and until you make them feel safe and loved, et cetera, they're not going to learn. And so that's what class is all about. And it's, it's a mommy teacher mentality. That's never yep. been true in human history, right? I mean, literally back in King Solomon's time, um, the, the idea of Freemasonry and uh, like en um, entered apprentices working with the master, the master was not mommy, right? The, the master was this grizzled guy that had worked in the field for ages in trades education. Mm -hmm. And he took this young green individual and he shaped them into a strong member of the community who could maintain these things fatherlessness is a huge epidemic in our communities across the color board. Well, not as much in the Hispanic community, but there's, there's a whole cultural, you know, thing to unpack there. Um, as far as in the United States dealing with the fatherlessness epidemic, that's far more important to me than soft do goodness, lovey dovey nonsense that doesn't breed strong individuals. In fact, it just weakens them further. Yeah. You know what? Can I inflate uh, self-esteem with praise? Like they, they, they pretend that the way that you gain self-esteem is through secondhand praise from other people, which is exactly the way that you weaken your self-esteem. Yeah. It has um, nothing to do with yourself that's you... at that point. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. It's, you're making it, me, uh, you're making me think of uh, do you remember? And I think it was 2017, the Yale Halloween costume controversy and Nicholas Moustakas. Oh. And you're making me think of that student in those videos. Those were some of the videos that first, that, that that played a pivotal role in waking me up, by the way. But there was a video of this student screaming, all these students screaming at this professor. And one of them was screaming, it's your job. It's your job to make us feel safe. It's your job to create a home. So it's like, no. <laughs> during the, after the uh, Parkland shooting, this was at Knightstown, Indiana, um, that all of the, the students got together and their infinite young person wisdom. And they're like, you know what? We need to stand against violence in schools. And so we're all going to walk out. We're all going to walk out of our classrooms at this day. And we're all going to walk out into the halls. And, you know, because we we're going to hold our destiny in our hands. And I remember looking at all of my students and I said, do not leave my classroom and go into the hallway at the time, like the national time. And our administrator, our principal did nothing. The teachers did nothing. No one did anything. So the students all, at least a lot of them got up and they walked into the hallway. And so I walked down the hall, seeing all these students sitting there in the hallways and they're, they're all looking at me smugly, like, ha ha, see, we're masters of our whatever. And yeah. I, I looked at them and I scowled at every one of them with the best scowl I could muster. And when my students came back into the classroom, I lectured them on how stupid they were. What is the first place a school shooter would do when he enters a school? He would walk up and down the hallways. Hallway on a nationally advertised event 
for students to go sit in the hallways. If you wanted to shoot up a school, that would have been the perfect time to do it. You know where the kids are. You know they're all going to be within arm's reach. And they're telling you they're all going to do it no matter whether we stop them or not. This is child activism. Mm -hmm. Not thinking about the ramifications or the consequences or the ideas that are going on behind it and not letting adults keep them safe. This is what we have. It's very Dewey and it's student-led education. They're bright young minds. Let's trust them. No, kids are dumb. <laughs> kids are stupid. <laughs> no, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that my student needs brownies and chocolate frosting for nutrition. No, they don't. They need good, solid nutrition. They need good structure. This is why Catherine Burblesing School in London with like really bedrock solid discipline is producing such results. Uh, this also reminds me of just quickly when Christina Hoff Summers, I forget which university she was lecturing at, but uh, one of the student groups on campus provided emotional support dogs in a, a classroom for students to come and sit in beanbag chairs and stroke dogs if they couldn't handle the feelings that it caught it provoked in them by Christina Huff Summers lecturing. <laughs> so <laughs> just, just I wonder, I mean, we're seeing it now, right? All of the kids that are getting out of high school and you know, they're completely helpless and they don't know how to handle any of the modern conflicts of society. They're breaking down at the slightest thing. You know, they're standing outside of pizza huts and yelling at the pizza hut building because they don't have the minimum wage that they want to work at that pizza hut. It's just, it's silly. Right. It's embarrassing. Yeah, but I think this, this is what, I mean, this is, uh, I think maybe for some piece of people, it's it's an explicit goal, but I think for a lot, it's just, you know, they don't, this may be not consciously chosen, but this is the goal, right? The goal is to create a population of whining brats who are, who are going to go do your bidding. I mean, this is why, this is why they parade around Greta Thunberg as if she's a climate expert, mm. right? She's some kid who skipped out on school to s sail on a yacht and meet with celebrities. And they, they tout her as if well we have to listen to her because she's a kid um what they really like about children is if they get them early they can make sure that once they've set the narrative and they've set the context they don't ask questions that go outside of the bounds um and i you know it's hard you seem to be not a fan of dewey which i'm happy about um oh he was very anti-semitic no one knows this but like he he <laughs> he very strongly supported eugenics and phrenology like no one no one talks about this and we like quote him all the time in education and i'm like no the man was horrible maybe you can talk about how the school system was designed and the prussian prison system and like what what the or the prussian system and and how would you design a school from scratch and how 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 were american schools designed oh Oh, those are two very different questions. So how the American school is designed is I'm going to say I'm not an expert on telling you all of the, I can tell you the quantitative data on like when school was designed in the Northwest ordinances and the specific, you know, counties. And then I can talk about consolidation later and, and why it was seen as a good idea and, and the factory model, um, which wasn't really set up to be a factory model. Like we could go through that. Um, I think that most of your audience, honestly, should just go look at some basic education history stuff. There are far better people to speak on it than me. However, I can say that in the modern circumstances, how would I design a school? Well, first, I would talk to the parents to whom the school I was designing. Uh, I think that schools should be vastly different based on the needs of the community. It's why I'm such a huge fan of school choice. I believe that the parents know the kids' needs. And then from that, I take my educational expertise and then I build a school with good curriculum that's very trades focused. I would say that mentorship is good. I would place second graders in the same classroom as fourth graders. 
Um, I would play sixth graders in the same classroom as eighth graders and like basically up the scale. Mentorship is huge. No one talks about the American single room schoolhouses in which 11th and 12th graders would be relied upon to assist in teaching reading to younger elementary students. Um, and it was very effective. Many aspects of the um, modern approach to the teacher is whole, wholly responsible for the entire classroom of 30 children is is has not worked. It hasn't worked since it was produced in the 1920s out of the Columbia teaching, uh, out of the Columbia teaching college. So I would try to make trades education. And I would also try to make mentorship and uh, apprenticeship uh, bedstones of the community. If it was a private school, then I would focus very heavily on classical education, classical learning tests, Jeremy Wayne Tate, they're doing wonderful work talking about reading the classics. Um, and I do mean like fourth and fifth graders reading Shakespeare. We do not expect enough from our children. Um, I would remove, I'm a science, I'm a STEM guy. I'm a screens technology guy who's very good with the 3D printer. I would not have screens in my school. Nope. Yeah. I just wouldn't. So what do you, what's that. your opinion about the, so some of that's a little bit Montessori-esque, the mentorship stuff, which I, which yes, I it is. like a lot. Um, and uh, I think we've all experienced like having to teach something is probably the best way to learn it. Um, once you're, once you have to teach it to someone else, you really need to make sure you know it really well, which I think is, is great for kids. Um, so it's helping them, the mentor and not just the mentee, uh, in that respect. What do you think of the, the trivium? And, you know, if, when I look at, when I look at, uh, lower education, I'm, I'm kind of, it's, it's almost unbelievable to me. Uh, unless I view the education system's goals as indoctrination, uh, it's almost unbelievable to me that you have kids who've never taken, let's just say, basic logic um, and basic critical thinking classes um, before college, right? Just basic, just basic, basic logic. Let's just say Aristotelian logic. It's just not there. Um, and I mean, have you looked at like the the medieval? education system like the the trivium and and the, the three different the three different phases of education yeah i i have taken a look at it i gotta tell you i i would say the jury is out at least for me personally on how to instruct students in critical thinking and logic you get to a lot of a lensatic view um so christian schools have been trying this for a long time uh with kind of mid levels of success it depends on the area um I think that logic and critical thinking is probably better taught within the subjects of the class. Um, so like you actually have a great books professor from Hillsdale, for example, which is uh, something that I really enjoyed. Actually, I, I didn't go to a Hillsdale professor, you know, backed high school, but uh, my girlfriend took a Hillsdale course. She was homeschooled at the time. And I would race over to her house on Wednesdays just to hear her great books class, uh, which mm -hmm. later on annoyed her greatly. Uh, but <laughs> I, just saying it was a really good course. And he taught critical thinking through how he analyzed the texts and not in the, what does the author mean by the, uh, the drapes are blue? No, he didn't, he didn't do it like that, but more of this is the societal context at the time. And this is why he writes this Latin phrase this way. Why do you think that, you know, this would be useful and what phrases do you think would be effective in our modern social political climate? And I'm like, this question's awesome. <laughs> I wish my teacher did that. I think that critical thinking on a subject level basis might be better. And that's just raising the standards for your teachers as well. So you would teach it in the same the way that they're, they, too, right? so you would teach yes. them the same way that they're teaching critical race theory in classes right now. 
by not saying I throw a Western civilization. Theory. Yes. Would I throw a, a Western civilization is good classical education lens in place of the critical race theory one? Absolutely in a heartbeat. And the reason is because completely objective education, when you take out every single view, every single lens, kids don't really learn. There's no goal. There's no motive. There's no reason to invest. Um, critical race theory is objectively flawed. Um, but Western civilization and classical rhetoric through Catholic and Protestant work ethics is objectively useful. And we have the data, the quantitative data that supports that. Yeah. By the way, just uh, you reminded me of this. It's something I'm really enjoying. I'm doing an online great books course right now, which is not something I ever did uh, when I was in school. And I can't recommend it enough. It's really great to, to walk through the classics um, and... It's something that I wish I had done when I was a when I was because because you can do it in high school. It's not like you don't need to be an old man to, to read it. It's accessible uh, to high school kids. I just wanted to uh, take a quick break and read. We had one super chat from someone who's very excited to have you here, Tony. She says, uh, two sisters and some yarn says, this is my new favorite episode. Former ECE teacher. In Head Start, the ultimate government guinea pig school, and I tried to fight CCSS because we all saw this coming. Thank you, two sisters. What is she um, about CCSS? I appreciate that. So there are a lot. Of, so education is full of buzzwords and acronyms. Uh, it's so there are a lot of remediation, Head Start, social learning programs that came through to try to engender. Um, the kind of progressive interactions that are supposed to produce really great stuff, but like every four and five year plan, they produce nothing. Um, and, and by the way, that's one of the reasons that you hear, that's why the terms at school A are so different than the terms at school B, because there are so many different little programs that use buzzwords and academic language. It's, oh, it's not critical race theory. It's culturally relevant teaching. It's culturally relevant pedagogy. It's culturally relevant, whatever. And you know, buzzword city, you just take any random words, you spin the wheel, you glue it together. And there's your thing. They don't really work. And that's one of the reasons it's so it's been so hard for so long for the right and the independents and moderates to fight it, because it looks different at every single school. And they will argue dogmatically and, and really just they will argue to to the death um, that what they are doing is so much different than what's being done at the Chicago public school system, which is not true in the slightest. Right. Yeah, ECE is early childhood education. Sorry, I should have clarified that. that that's fine. And, and, and CCSS, said, I'm sorry, I, I also should have clarified that CCSS stands for Common Core Standards. Okay. Yeah. Now, can you can you tell me? Are you? I don't. We don't need to get to specifics here, but I just one of the things that struck me when we first saw your videos is just, are you afraid of the repercussions of talking about this stuff? No. I'm not really, uh, I'm not, I'm not afraid about it. My wife and I had a conversation about this. Um, I think personally, it is far more important that the parents of Indianapolis are not lied to. Look, if you're going to teach critical race theory in the school, then you should be able to explain to parents why you're teaching with critical race theory. If your racial equity office does not actually know critical race theory well enough to state, yeah, we're teaching critical race theory and here is why then maybe that you maybe you're shouldn't be in your job. Maybe you're not good enough at what you claim to be good at. If you're using critical race theory, at least tell parents right up front so that if they want to take their kids somewhere else, they can. I am a public school administrator who will be homeschooling my children because I don't trust the infrastructure in the public school system. I don't like being lied to. I don't like public schools being, I don't like public schools lying to parents. That's wrong. And so 
I've already gotten word that at least six families are taking their kids out of the Indianapolis public school system. Now there are, you know, 31,000 students. That's a small number. Um, but I think those parents should have been told from the beginning, that's what the school's doing. So they could make that choice for themselves. At the end of the day, it rests within the rights of the parents. No kid or no parent should be forced to do something with their tax dollars and their child that they don't want. Well, it betrays their motives a little bit by secrecy when someone's not transparent about what they're doing it's completely rational to question the legitimacy of what the hell that is they're doing right if someone if you if you were if you felt fine about it and you thought this were the this was the right thing you would just announce it and say yes this is what we're doing this is why we're doing it um here's complete transparency it's people who are uh who who feel guilty hide what they're doing bingo the second that you identify exactly what critical race theory is, people can start to pick it apart, right? I mean, this is this this is kind of the humor of it, right? So this is the exact same crowd that will, you know, open up the Bible and they will cite specific verses out of context that they don't like and say, see, 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 this is why we don't need Christian indoctrination in our schools. But then when you point to Kimberly Crenshaw's book and you say, see, 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 in context, this is what she's saying about how we need to treat our students differently based on color. And then immediately it's deflection, deflection. Oh, this isn't critical race theory. Oh, this is racial equity. Oh, you're a white supremacist. Oh, you're not anti-racist. Oh, and it goes down the line. And so, yeah, I think you're right. There's, there's embarrassment and then there's also fear because people don't like it. And the public school doesn't want to bend and accede to the wishes of the parents. And so they change the name, they swap it around, and then they don't let individuals in, in some districts, not in IPS, but in some districts, they won't let parents into... Um, into the school board meeting without, you know, pre-screening their comments, which is what's happening in Western Wayne Township in, uh, in Eastern Indiana. Wow. Now you, you mentioned when you were rattling off things that you've read, you mentioned some of the, you know, Billy Crenshaw, um, uh, Delgado, but you also mentioned Marcusa. Um, and the reason I want to jump on that for a minute is Marcusa is not a 1980s writer of critical race theory. Mar Mar right. Marcus is much older and the effect that he's had, I think, on university thought has been much more pernicious and widespread because he was uh, A, much more well-known and B, much older. Well said. Uh, so could we could we maybe talk about what one thing that that concerns me is I, I also, you know, Repressive Tolerance, if anyone hasn't read it, it's a great essay, great place to start with Marcusa if you want to see um, some of his thought processes here and, and, and how they've now, you know, been applied later on. But when you look at kind of the Frankfurt School and then the, the postmodernists after that, uh, I look at that and I see, oh, this, there are some origins of some really bad, there's like a poison pill that we started to take. And it took a long time for the effects to really manifest themselves to the point where we are now have dysfunction. And one of the things that I'm concerned about is a lot of people aren't looking that far back and they're saying, well, we didn't have dysfunction in the 80s. Let's just go back to what we were doing in the 80s. But what we were doing in the 80s involved at the university level, <laughs> pushing these really bad ideas so that we, they could be rolled out several decades later. Like, and. I think really what we what I'm I'm concerned about is we're we're cutting out a cancer without really doing the chemotherapy necessary to eradicate it from the bloodstream. Yeah. The universities are absolutely and completely saturated and rotten. 
I believe from my research that this basically comes out of Berkeley. And there was a time in this country where everyone was like, you know what? Maybe that radical Marxism and maybe that really horrific socialist ideology and, and critical pedagogy isn't so bad. Maybe it's not bad for people to have those opinions. And when they, when they see those things in public, I shouldn't say, hey, you're wrong and I don't agree with you and I don't want you teaching my children. Instead, I'll just say, oh, you know, we'll let bygones be bygones. And, you know, everyone has their opinion and that's important and that's wonderful. And then those individuals get into college classrooms and then those individuals get tenure. And then they're able to radically put forth everything that they, you know, so greatly suggest. I'm, I'm arguing with people on Twitter right now about my argument that tenure should not be a thing. You should never be in a position where you can say whatever you want and there be no organizational repercussions for it. That's just me. Um, but as far as, you know, Marcuse is concerned, you know, he has a quote that says, liberating tolerance then would mean intolerance against movements from the right and toleration movements from the left. If someone on the right said that with the things flipped, alarm bells would be ringing. Yep. But because he said it and his points are that we need to tolerate the left and we need to not ever hear the right. That means that when you take that theory and you, you flush it out, you get to where we are today. So you're right. You know, we shouldn't be going back to the way things were in the 80s. We shouldn't. We should be taking a look at what actual culture, what actual conservatism in this country means and we should be taking a look at what education was meant to do and revisit those ideas. And as E.D. Hirsch Jr. puts it, not regurgitate the exact same new ideas that came out of the 1920s through places like Columbia. Right. right. And Can I ask you what are... If we what don't are... do that, it'll, it'll come back in some other form. Sorry, go ahead, mm -hmm. Carrie. Yep. So you're, you were saying, you know, you're going to homeschool your children what about when you get to the university level? And I was just, I just saw, I was at the Better Discourse Conference this weekend and was talking to James Lindsay about this. Are there any colleges in your opinion that are other than Hillsdale? Like would, what would you recommend for parents who have kids who are university age and who are interested? Yeah, in so I love Hillsdale as much as the next guy, but I don't like that they're basically held as the only constitutional conservative standard out there. There are a lot of Christian universities, uh, Maranatha Baptist, where I went, Bob Jones University, Western Coast, you know, Pensacola, Faith in Iowa. There are a lot of smaller colleges that have really, really great programs uh, that kids can go to. It's just about doing your research. It's about actually speaking with different people and, and talking about the university values, talking to students that are on campus, people outwards looking. You have to do a little bit of research past just writing for scholarships. And I think that a lot of parents and students don't do that research and they just hear Hillsdale and they're like, OK, well, it's Hillsdale or nothing. Hmm. No. Number two, I don't want all of my kids to go to college. If all of my students or if all of my children that my wife and I have choose to go to college, I think that I might have failed as a parent. Um, I would like some of my kids to go to trade school. I would like for some of my kids to maybe join the military of the United States. Um, uh, I was Congressman Mike Pence's, you know, last appointment to West Point. I mean, I think that the academies are a wonderful place, although they are dealing with some significant ideological garbage at the moment. Personally, you know, through all of this, I would hope that parents would take a look at just what college is used for. Your kid does not need to use your money to go get a degree in theater. If you can't act and you can't learn acting from being around actors and, and you know, you can't get into community theater productions without a four-year degree, probably not a good actor. What about That's African dance? Oh, I mean, you know, same with <laughs> lesbian basket weaving. I mean, these are just essential courses for our human history.
That's worth $100,000 in loans, obviously. 100000 Oh, well, you must have got a discount right there. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm old, I guess. Yeah. Um, I'm glad that you said that. I mean, one of the things that gives me hope, actually, is I'm not opposed to universities as a concept. Uh, but I do like that. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that the current university system falls apart and needs and, and gets rebuilt somehow. Um, and I, but I think parents need to hear comments like yours because a lot of parents, you know, we grew up at, at a time or, or our parents grew up at a time and we were indoctrinated into this. Like, look, look, this is, you have to go, if you want a good job, you got to go to college. You have to, like college is the, is the, is the answer. And, you know, if you want to be a brain surgeon, you are going to have to go to an accredited medical school. And, and that's part of that, right? But if you want to be, I've said this before on the show, but if you, you want to be a computer programmer, you want to do software, you want to be a software engineer, you don't have to go to college, you don't have to go to MIT, um, you have to program, you have to learn how to do it, build the resume, build a build a GitHub database. Uh, or sorry, build a GitHub uh, CV, show that you've got a portfolio of code that you've done and what you've done. And that's how you move forward. A degree isn't really that necessary. And when when people are looking at the cost benefit analysis, they don't usually really rationally look at uh, A, the cost and the long-term cost of have having, being saddled with that much debt that can't be forgiven. Right. And B, like the the, what actual advantage do you have? I mean, if you're going to get a degree in theater, uh, but you're going to end up being a barista, is, did that really work out? Is that, and, was that a good choice? And this is kind of the, my, my core issue with American society in general is that we place way too much impetus on, on titles and degrees. And, and basically what we consider is our entitlement that as long as I do this one thing, then I am given this permanent step up in society. As long as I have this degree, then I will always be... XYZ, super duper amazing, and everyone will always respect me. This is why, by the way, why I'm not getting my PhD. If I got my PhD, no one would view me any differently. They would view me with annoyance with that they'd have to call me Dr. Kennett instead of Mr. Kennett. Um, and I agree with them. <laughs> uh, I, and I've been invited to some really great PDH, or PhD programs, but no. I think that I agree with you that degrees are useless. I would, or not, degrees are a lot more useless than, you know, we, we give them credit against. I would suggest a lot of the skills that we put our kids through in K through 12 education are also very useless. Your mm -hmm. kids should probably not be coding. I'm sorry. I, as a STEM guy, I think that elementary STEM, like all, all of our kids have to code. No, they don't. What a waste of time. And, and most of the coding environments are toys anyway. Um, I'm sorry. You just hit a small nerve. I, I absolutely <laughs> hate the, the, the paradigm of, Oh, our kids have to code. And then the school can say, well, our children know how to program things like, no, you're, your child is is playing a game for hours a day where they code a cat to wave. <laughs> no, that's not good education. It, no, and yeah, they don't I, need to code I, either. Like 1% of all STEM jobs are coding. Yeah. Stop. I, yeah, a... let, I want to say something about coding for just a sec. Wait, oh, I, bring it on. Let's go. No, no, no. I'm actually not. I'm not going to necessarily disagree with you, right? So I grew up coding, but not because it was in school. Like I wanted to code and no one else was coding and I learned right. how to code and that's what I, that's what I wanted to do. Awesome. Um, and, and I ended up getting a degree in electrical engineering cause I'm a nerd and that's what I wanted to do. Right. Um, however, after when I, when I was hiring people, uh, 
often the university educated software engineers were not as good uh, of employees or coders or even thinkers as a lot of the self-taught um, coders. And I don't, you know, I, w I wouldn't go so far as to say kids, you know, don't teach kids to code or they wouldn't need to code. I, I, some kids are going to be interested in that stuff. And I think I'd say offer it as an elective, like as an after school yeah. program, like a robotics club, offer a coding club. Sounds fun to me. Yeah, I, I would say, I don't, I don't know. I haven't thought this through, but off the top of my head, I would say that there is some value in not in playing those stupid coding games, but in understanding how computers work fundamentally, because they are such a part of our lives right. and being able to to not be intimidated by them and view them as magic boxes, but to know, okay, there's a lot of complexity here that I don't know, but I kind of know the basics and how they work basically. And I, I might not choose to do that, but just like I might not choose to be an expert in, in French, I did learn French in high school. I kind of understand the language it has a different structure than English and it's a romantic language and they all have the same structure and right. I can see Latin roots and like, there's some value there. Um, but so I, I guess I'm not as like anti-coding per se as you, but I see well, what you're saying. Well, I, I think we're getting off on a little tangent here. I just oh, wanted to say- Oh, sorry about that. No, no that's it... okay. <laughs> I, I just, uh, I, I want to thank you so much for being here with us. And, and I want to make sure I get to ask you this question before we lose you. I'm not sure when we're going to lose you. What can parents do? And we have a lot of parents who watch the show, uh, uh, teachers, educators. And I think in general, people who watch our show- I think they're, I think they would probably, most of them, if you took their temperature, they would agree that more people are waking up, more people are talking. There's, there's mm. still a lot of fear about speaking right. against social justice ideology, whether that's critical race theory or what have you. But, um, for the people who think they can't do anything, like how can they support you? How can they support chalkboard review and other educators? Oh, that's a, uh, that's a very full question. So as far as for what parents can do, uh, first of all, I would have to ask parents, well, what do you want your goal to be? Um, what do you want to do? I would argue that we, I, I have a little, so there's a guy that I know locally who says he's, he's an activist. So what he does is he's an activist. I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not as, is for encouraging parents to be activists. I'm for encouraging parents to get things done. I'm encouraging yes. parents to do things that better the community that most importantly, better their own family and their own kids. The first thing I would suggest is taking control of your own home and looking at what your kid's looking at on the phone. If I open up my phone to Snapchat, as I'm going to do, because I've used this example so much, and I am certain I have not opened up Snapchat today. If I flip this over to the right, I am going to be met with all kinds of absolutely horrible articles. Let's see here. It's go time about pimple popping, R-rated, talking about why R-rated movies are great. Zelda's secret smut sesh gets ruined. Wow. Uh, bar stool founder accused of disturbing sex acts. This is stuff that like teenagers are looking at, by the way, guys. Um, uh, <laughs> so much of this stuff is sexual and, and, and pornographic. Is is Trisha Pate's transgender? Um, all of this stuff is just, it, it's cleavage and it's garbage and it's filth. And that's why I never open up Snapchat. This is where your kid's getting it. The odds that your kid is getting all of the the, the filth from the classroom is patently not true. Um, now, can your kid get a bunch of socialist critical race theory garbage from the classroom? Absolutely. And what I would suggest is that you talk to your teacher and find out how cooperative they are working with you. Um, by all means, please, uh, if a teacher is being disruptive and obnoxious and they're calling you, you know, very bad things, et cetera, then, then you go to the principal. If the principal is being uncooperative, 
then you have a principal that's not doing their job. You go to the superintendent. When the superintendent doesn't do anything about it, then you go to elect a better school board. Going and shouting at the school board looks great on camera. It doesn't do anything. The school board is not there to listen to you. Very few school boards I found actually care what the parents have to say. And that's really heartbreaking for everyone to hear, but they're just not. If you go to the school board and you say, hey, are you I see this worksheet. I don't like it. And then the school board goes like, hmm, uh, well, that's too bad. Elect a better school board. This, this may my, sound like a dumb suggestion. question, but just Not to follow up on one of those things, when you're talking about the phone and how they're, they're getting most of woke ideology and felt and stuff from the social media, how do you practically, because I've had people in the chat here before say, well, I don't want to handicap my kids. They need to learn how to use computers and, and learn how to use Facebook and social media and things like this. What would your answer be to those? What are what's some practical, like how do you control uh, it? First of all, home? that's a really hefty, it, it, to, be, to be very clear and candid, which I'm trying to be very transparent so that your followers know I'm, I haven't, I haven't sugarcoated anything so far. That's an excuse. Um, I have yet to see a child who has not used an iPad since birth and, you know, goes into a middle school classroom and is expected to use an iPad and struggles. No, because you know what? When I was in middle school, actually, when I was in high school, the iPad came out. And I picked up an iPad and, oh, wow, I, I could use an iPad very well within half an hour. Well, just to be clear, uh, they've spent millions and millions of dollars making sure that that interface is completely intuitive and that you don't have to do any learning in order to yeah, use it. I, so, I just think that course. screen addiction is a far bigger risk than the reward of, oh, my kid's going to know where the start button is. Well, that's wonderful, Meredith, but your kid's screen addicted. And that causes a very serious line of issues. It does. And I, I think that's one of the biggest things. Like the only device that my daughter is going to have access to is um is going to be like a kindle paperwhite for a bit unless she's watching a movie or stuff with us i don't want her to have that in her life for a very long time that's just yeah. that's just me personally no i'm with you on that one thank you carter has a, a daughter so usually i'm stuck asking carter these questions and uh and and he's also a, a, yeah. a new father again secondly yeah, neither one of them get. My my one daughter is at the age where everyone has a phone except for her. Um, but uh, actually about the screen addiction thing, my rule with her has been, well, demonstrate that you can use your iPad responsibly resp and, and responsibly and not get stuck in it and go down rabbit holes. And when I see that behavior for a long time, then we'll think about getting a phone. I would also suggest that this is just advice and that you should raise your kids how you want. And I'm not going to, I mean, yeah. I'm, when I say that I'm, when I'm telling you how you should parent, uh, that is not me saying I'm going to use the law to tell you how to parent. That is me saying, here is my advice. If you don't like it, if you think I'm an idiot, that's your right. And I hope that yeah. you go and your family is very successful by all means. It's, it's something I've, I've recently, Carter knows this. I would like to be a parent at some point. And so that's why I ask these questions because I don't know what I would do. And I, and I hear from people also who are saying, well, this is the reason why I do this. And so anyway, I'd like to hear practical advice from people and who from people who limit the use of screens. Kids. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's, there's some, some good situations to use screens. I'm not suggesting, you know, they never come into contact with lit glass. I'm just saying there are risks and, and, and be aware of it and companies market to make sure your kid is addicted. Well, Where? and they designed to make sure your kid's addicted. Like those, yeah. those interfaces are designed to be mm -hmm. addictive. Every piece of media. You're 100% correct. Where can people find you online? 
Absolutely. So unfortunately, I am a part of the lovely cesspool called Twitter because that's where news breaks and it's where I can see things in that nature. You can follow me on Twitter at the Tonus, T-H-E-T-O-N-U-S. More important than that, though, I would ask, please go follow the chalkboard review. You'll see a lot of stuff that we post that we do. You can follow uh, Frank McCormick. I've seen people in the chat talking about chalkboard heresy. He's one of our dudes. Daniel Buck as well. Stephanie Edmonds, the teacher from New York fighting against the vax mandate. Uh, many of those are chalkboard review people. You can find that at thechalkboardreview.com, thechalkboardreview.com. And then across all of our social medias, that's at chalkboard rev because they don't give us enough characters for at chalkboard review. Now, how much longer do we have you? I don't want to presume. I well, tell you what. I have uh, I have a, a previous in, engagement um, at 3.15. So like another, let's say another like two minutes-ish. Well, let's do tell us a, a joke. I'm kidding. <laughs> a joke. Oh, oh, oh. Um. <laughs> well, you should hear you should hear this super chat that says I have to applaud the integrity on display here. I think that's directed at you. That's from Ian so forth. So we should we should give you that praise while you're here while we've got you. That's very um, kind. I appreciate that. And one other one uh, from Marby Dog says, I think school choice is the only way to motivate schools to remove CRT, gender theory and pornographic material. What's your thought on that? I They're not going to remove it. Choice. They're not going to remove it. I no, nothing motivates public. You, you're not. You're never going to motivate a bureaucracy. Nothing motivates a bureaucracy. <laughs> That's not how that works. Uh, I'm one of the individuals who thinks that my job should not exist. There should be no reason for a massive district. Uh, that's like 31,000 students where I am over all of these teachers. Um, I My personal case to that is that the biggest mistake the United States made was consolidating its school districts and making that a thing. Um, that's an argument that I'll be making pretty soon for a certain publication. So keep an eye out for that. As far as school choice being the end all be all, I'm not with Neil McCluskey 100% on that. I'm just not. I'm very pro school choice, like very pro school choice. Um, but I think there's a lot more to it than just kind of saying it's going to be the end all be all. Okay. One last one from Cheeky Mare says, I am in Indiana and would like to meet like-minded people. Any suggestions? Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm watching the comment at the moment, Cheeky Mare. Uh, throw in like what general county you're in. I'm very familiar with all of the Indiana affiliates. I mean, you've got like Unite Carmel, you've got Fishers One, you have... Uh, the Hancock Patriots, which are on the east side. There's one for Avon. There's one for Southern Indiana, Northern Indiana. I mean, you've Facebook parent groups and like minor organizations are um, just all over Marion. Oh, you're like Marion County or Marion? Uh... She says Irvington. Oh, oh, okay. So you're on the east side of Indianapolis. Okay, so so I would hook up with. There are some really interesting local groups. If you don't use Facebook, Purple for Parents Indiana. Google that they will definitely look um, at some of the stuff that you're talking about. Cool. Oh, I got another super chat. <laughs> when are the SJWs going to start capitalizing the S in she only when referring to trans woman? <laughs> like what the SJWs do with the B for black people. Thank you, Francis. That's a great question. <laughs> I, haven't had, I haven't considered that one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, if you're expecting consistency from these individuals, um, you're going to be waiting a while. Yes. <laughs> hey, that's part of that's that's a but that's a feature, not a bug. They don't yeah. have to be consistent. So, um, well, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. I know you've got to run. This has been this has been been really in uh, informative and inspirational. It's good to know that you're there are ones the Ron Swansons of local education are out there. Uh, so. 
Appreciate that. Yeah, really, Tony, thank you. And I wish you the best of luck with Chalkboard Review. We'll, we'll start. Uh, we'd love to have more of you guys on. Absolutely. Thank you very much, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks, Tony. Bye. Also, I saw Comics Division was in the chat earlier. Hello, Comics. I don't know if you're still here. But we he have had a, a couple super more chat. super chats. Yeah, we should read them. But I didn't. I skipped over them because they weren't directly related to Tony. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to read the Comics Division one? Comics says, speaking from experience, you don't need a formal education to get a job in tech. But tech is woke, too. That is true. Tech is Interesting woke. to be woke. Um, and TPS says, University of Dallas, Irving, Texas, Catholic Classical. So it sounds like another classical education uh, suggestion. Yeah, I don't, doesn't, um, I mean, there are a couple of places with great books programs. Doesn't University of Chicago have a great books program? And so does uh, St. John's, I think. I'm not, Uses, University uh, of Chicago wouldn't surprise me if they do, because aren't they the ones that adopted the free speech principle yes. where they basically were saying, you know, you should be allowed to speak even wrong thing. What's now considered wrong thing. Yeah. I mean, they, I think they started the great books programs generally okay. in Chicago and I think they're still going, but I don't know. Uh, so maybe if, if someone in chat knows. I I'm think. so happy we had him on Carter. That was great. I, I just really like his confidence in what he's doing. And it, and it blows me away that, that he's still, you know, Feels because I know I, I I guess I've gotten to this level of fear that people have with speaking out, and I hear from enough people, and I'm sure you do too, who are like, I agree with you guys, and I'm so glad you're doing this, and I work in this part of education, and I'm too afraid to say anything, right. and so to hear someone who's like, I'm just going to say what I think, and I work in education, and I'm going to start a publication with other educators, and we're going to push back against this. That's like, yes, <laughs> yes, yep. I would anyway. Very impressed. Yeah, very impressed, Aubrey says. Cool. All right. Well, what else uh, What else do you want to talk about today, Carrie? Um, well, first, I wanted to catch you guys up. Uh, I, I did go to the Better Discourse Conference oh, this yeah. weekend. Yeah, yeah, we've had those guys on the show before, uh, Sean and Brian, two of the organizers anyway. And uh, it was great. There were other – let me give you a breakdown of what happened. There were – uh, there were some really great moments. There were some very frustrating moments. <laughs> the, uh, I got to see people like, well, like James Lindsay, who I mentioned was there, Jack Posobiec, Melissa Chen, um, actual justice warrior who we've had on the show and Libby Evans couldn't make it. She ended up having to oh. cancel last minute, which was unfortunate, but, um, Ariel uh, Scarelli, I'm going to get her last name wrong. I think anyway, there was a whole mix of people there. There were Nikki people on the left. Nikki sent me a picture of the two of you. You saw her as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Nikki Klein. There, but there were also, uh, you know, the, the people who come, it's really hard for them to get people on the left to come. And I know why this is, because when I was in social justice, I mean, the whole ideology is built around, as we've talked about before, I think it's very cult-like. It's very much about keeping people in the echo chamber and they discourage you from talking to anyone outside of it and everything they set up all this stuff about discourse and how it's there's a power imbalance and therefore you shouldn't seek to legitimize yourself with people who disagree with you plus they call everybody who's not a social justice warrior a nazi and say you shouldn't talk to nazis so and they've been doing that online with with better discourse conference they've been calling everyone uh, who's a part of, of myth-informed uh, white nationalists, which is insane. But um, but anyway, so it's very hard to get people on the left to come out and talk. And the ones who come 
or people like Justin Gibson, SJW debates on Twitter, who we've had him on the show before. And on the one hand, I find it very, I had to moderate, I moderated a panel with him. I did last at the last conference too. And uh, I found that panel to be very difficult because you get people who, in my opinion, he's not so much listening to what the other person is saying and responding to it, it, it while being present. There's a lot of preparation and studying that's happening because it's almost like if how, how to one-up someone in a debate. And, and I, anybody who knows him on Twitter knows that he thinks of the engagement as a debate. And so it's like, if somebody says this, then I've got this retort, you know, and if they say this, then I've got this. And so there's a lot of memorization of things so that, you know, you can, you can just basically fight down what anyone says. And I'm more interested in conversations and actually talking to each other and not debating, but having a conversation and listening and being comfortable enough in your ideas that you don't need to memorize those things that you can articulate yourself without having memorized a lot of retorts or facts, um, knowing that the facts support you, but feeling comfortable enough with what you're saying. And so this, this kind of format is hard for that though. It's not like a civility dinner. You're on stage, there's an audience. I think it lends itself more to the debate form. And so one of my panels- it's more like Fox News or whatever, where you've got like yeah. a soundbite, you, you, got, you got limited time, get your soundbite in, do it over and over again, done. Yeah. So one of the panels I moderated went very well, even though I had Destiny on my panel and I had just seen him on the previous panel with a different moderator. He and Nico Case or Nico House were just yelling over each other. And I was thinking that was going to happen on my panel, but it didn't. We had a great one. It was great. We actually had a conversation and Jack Posobiec was on that one. And, but then but then the next one I had, uh, uh, I had Justin on there. I had James Lindsay on there. Uh, Sean Fitzgerald filled in for Libby and um, uh, Michael Gonzalez, who you'll remember, he was on there. And it just evolved into talking over one another, yelling over one another. I, it, I've, I've got to figure out a way to better handle people, almost like I, like when you step into the wrestling ring. If you start yelling over someone else, you know, do I throw down a red flag? How do I get control back at that point? And so that was really frustrating because, and I'm sure it's frustrating for the audience too because they can't hear what anyone's saying. Because people are just yelling. Yeah, I, I've thought about this problem before. I don't. I don't have an answer, but I've thought about it before. And the conclusion, the tentative conclusion that I've come to is, you can only really have a conversation between two people, and you can have a third person moderate that. If that third person isn't trying to like have the conversation, but they have kind of absolute control over shutting people, like muting, like nope, stop. Yeah. Where like I'm gonna I'm gonna actually strongly moderate this to make sure that you're having a conversation. Um, and, but I think once it gets beyond two people trying to have a conversation, I think it just becomes unmanageable. I don't, I don't think you can do it. Yeah. Well, we managed unless it they both one. are there to do that. Right. Yeah. Right. I managed it for one of the panels. I was shocked. It was that first one I did was, it was great. I, I felt like we actually got to some points of agreement between all these people who disagree. Now there was also a lot of disagreement, but nobody, it didn't devolve into yelling and, right. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I've, I want to think some more about that. But anyway, that was one of the frustrating parts. One of the other amazing parts was that they 
I mean, they filled up this room afterwards. There was a VIP. They sort of did like at our retreat, you know, you have this opportunity to hang out with people all weekend. They had this thing where you could hang out with people for uh, in a restaurant. They took over this restaurant and people were having, you know, dinner after the, after the day's uh, events. And it just looking around and seeing all these people that filled up this room and, and all the conversations that were happening. And that was just very inspiring. It's, it, it made me, it made me just think more about how we need to have more of these in-person kind of events where we're forming all these connections. We're learning from people and meeting new people online all the time in our community and in other communities that we've uh, been a part of that shows that we've been on, but we need to have more of these meetups so that yeah, I agree. everybody can meet one another and form these relationships in real life. And like the, the subject of one of my panels was national narrative. And how do we move forward? Kim, is it possible to stay united? And, you know, whether you believe that it's possible or not, we need to it's be forming discussion. relationships. Yeah. So sure. anyway. Yeah, happened. no, I think it's, I think it's great. I think the in-person stuff is awesome. I'm glad that you got a chance to do it. So, um, yeah. Cool. cool. And I assume people can go. Oh yeah. Uh, so they can go to, to watch it. They can go online, the uh, Myth Informed YouTube channel to check it out, the Better Discourse Conference. I think Destiny also streamed it um, from his channel, so you can watch it on either of those, but we can tweet it too. We can tweet it from Unsafe Space later. From the Goose. Okay, cool. From the Goose. The Goose can do it. All right. Sweet. Um, all right, let's let's do a super chat before we do anything else, if we're going to. We've yeah. been going for an hour and a half almost. We could could end the show, but let's do this chat from Marby Dog. Marby Dog says, Governor Newsom has disappeared from public since his recent booster shot. He even canceled the scheduled appearance at the climate summit. Adverse reaction? <laughs> I've, I've noticed that, Marby Dog. Uh, fake news is all I'm allowed to say. But, yeah, who knows? Your guess is as good as mine. He did He did have his booster, and he had a bunch of stuff canceled, uh, scheduled, including the climate uh, appearance, climate summit appearance, and he did, in fact, not show up and cancel those things. So, who knows? Uh, journal oh, poems. Journal says that... poems. Can oh, I read ahead. this one? Yeah. I, so, journal poems. Uh, we're going to have him on the show. I've been talking to him, and I apologize. He was at the conference, so I was happy I got to tell him. I'm sorry. Oh, cool. I haven't had the interview scheduled, but you guys uh, will remember journal poems from the uh, viral video that uh, of people in the Walmart doing the, was were they singing the national anthem or? Uh, it was the national anthem, I think. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, he's got a great channel full of spoken word and poetry. He says that guest was great. I will be sharing with my education, passionate friends. Thank you, sir. Uh, and thanks for yeah. coming out. Yeah. All right. I think that's, I think we got through our super chats. Um, anything else about better discourse you want to tell us or is that good? Well, I'm trying to spread one last thing. This is a bit of frivolity, Carter. Allow me a minute. Okay. <laughs> I'm, pri- I'm trying to spread. Remember I told you, I think it would be great if we just lean into clown world and we have some fun with it. And so um, I took some of my blue clown wigs down there and got some photos of people in the clown wigs. I just think it's sort of like, look, if, if you are up for this and if you're a person who enjoys fun and you also want to push back in a fun way, we should start going to some of the the quote unquote resist protests and some of the Black Lives Matter things and some of the women's marches. And I think we should just dress as clowns and carry their signs. 
Like, don't even try to be funny. Just carry what they say. Like, have a sign that says silence is violence or Black Lives Matter or sure. the future is female and dress like a clown. That's I cool. like the future is female. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it reminds me that I think that's a that's a scene in Cobra Kai where the kid is wearing the future is female. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And the sensei comes in. He's like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also saw that you just sent some stuff to Beverly, which is funny because you are sending something and I happen to have seen that before, but the headline was different. They've softened the headline. No. Or is no, it a what, different article? No, it's the same article. The version that you saw was a fake. So, oh, okay. yeah. So this is the real article, which we can okay. put it up and still talk about it. I thought the, the fake version was funny. It just, the fake version just basically made, got straight to the point. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Put, put it up, Beverly. It's from today's parent. I'm going to find the actual article. So, so that's that's an image of it. Uh, so here's the headline for anyone just listening at home. It's it's a publication called, to, what is it, Today's Parent? Today's Parent. And it says, here's what you should know about baby wearing and cultural appropriation. And then there's a little picture here of three different moms of different ethnicities and their baby, carrying their babies in different ways. So there's a uh, black woman with a sling. She's got a baby in a sling. And uh, there's an Asian woman with the baby over her back and a Native American woman with a baby, uh, like, what do you call it? Papoose or no? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, I know I've violated that because I've specifically said to our baby that I'll put you in a papoose. Like I've, I've used the word. Even, so I've <laughs> definitely done that tiger. one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've definitely done the swaddle and the, African yeah. clothes wrap, I can confirm that we violated that one as well. <laughs> um, it's only been two weeks. So we're violating everything. Oddly enough, although um, my wife is Chinese, we haven't we haven't done the Asian one. Um, <laughs> so we're just wow. getting ourselves in trouble. <laughs> well, how's your baby going to know what race? What race I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah. So... So somebody uh, tried to distill this to its, its essence, and that was also the version I saw originally. And it just said, "It just said the way you carry your your baby might be racist." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what I saw. I was like, "What the hell?" Uh, can you put up that other one, other picture, one other moment for Bali, Beverly? This I just wanted to confess that I didn't realize until I saw this oh. article. But uh, Tiger, it, it turns out Tiger and I have been culturally appropriating this whole time and you have <laughs> yeah did you say appropriating yes <laughs> <laughs> cultural so, appropriation we've been doing it we've been doing cultural appropriation there you go. i i so does, what is this article i didn't actually read i saw the headline does this honestly tell you what that you i you shouldn't carry them that way or that you have to learn about the cultural the cultures behind it so it's it's probably what you can guess. It's one of these articles that that is uh, trying to make you feel bad for quote unquote appropriating things from other cultures. And it this says can only that, be written by someone who's never had a newborn child. Or I don't know. There's a lot of woke people having kids and raising woke. Can we read some of this? Do you want to read some? Uh, sure. Do you want me to just pick random stuff here? Modern yeah. baby carriers that we see and use today are based on traditional baby carriers that have been used all around the world for hundreds of thousands of years. Yes. Yeah, so what? 
everything has been it, oh my god <laughs> everything's based on traditional things that have been in use for a long time like they that's then they update uh in fact er, i wonder if the baby bjorn is anti-icelandic uh or if that is that it's Bjorn isn't Iceland. I assume that's Icelandic. In fact, early humans may have started making carriers from animal skins, plants, and blah, 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 blah. Who cares? According to James McKenna, an anthropology professor with nothing else to do, uh, these carrying devices were some of the first tools ever created. Okay, great. That's why it's so important. Oh, it's so <laughs> important to respect the cultures of our baby-wearing knowledge comes from. Oh my, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> As this ancestral practice existed long before it was popularized in the West. Mm. Mm-hmm. Right. I want you go go to a different culture and <laughs> and tell them to respect uh, the the white culture because electricity existed in the white culture long before it was popularized where you are. Well, it's um, it's almost like it's like white people we just carrying our baby around by the top of their hair until we felt <laughs> like we didn't know how to carry our babies until we saw a picture. <laughs> like, it's 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 just everything is racialized. It's so ridiculous. In fact, baby wearing has often been denied to indigenous and racialized parents and children through the process of colonization. What? It was seen as primitive, less culturally acceptable, or somehow lesser than. Since historically, Europeans didn't do that, I guess. They used prams and strollers. So can I yell at black people that use prams and strollers and be like, my ancestors invented the pram, how dare you? Ah! What the hell? This is so stupid. It's hard to even, it's hard to read this and take it seriously and even comment seriously. It's just, but I, it's I, in, I feel it's like this is just- It's parenting magazine now. It's like when we saw the Dog Groomer magazine and it was talking about diversity. <laughs> I feel like Ryan Long wrote this from his auto woke article generator. Uh, uh, can we get down to one of my, my favorite? Yeah, yeah. Which is your favorite? Let's do that. As a baby wearing educator. <laughs> I just thought that. <laughs> I, you know, I would take it more seriously if it said as a black trans baby wearing educator. But just a baby wearing educator. Uh, I'm not sure. I have to take so, your opinion. I've uh, I got a picture here of how we white people carry babies in Texas. Uh, I found this on the gun rack. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. There you go in the holster. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to see anyone appropriating this, and I'll have to do a we'll have to do one of those racist tests they do to see how white you are or how black you are if you're if you're gonna wear if you're gonna use the baby holster that's a white invention i'm kidding Look at the, i'm totally I, kidding i hate this world that they're creating I, I, i'm gonna skip to the last <laughs> paragraph because it's hilarious to me it's a single sentence and it says there are many more examples too numerous to list here oh, i guess it's two sentences but if baby wearing companies involved bipoc experts in the design process <laughs> and put in the necessary work and time needed for education they would find it easier to recognize potentially offensive inspiration and honor the ancestral practice of baby wearing instead of appropriating it. <laughs> it's like, I mean, you can't say anything to this person other than fuck you and go away. Like it just, there's no, they're, they're basically advocating for a DEI panel of people like to create jobs in every sector you can imagine, just like the Tony who we just talked to in education. Right. So he's got this job reviewing science textbooks, and then they put this DEI panel behind him that have reviews everything he does. They want this in uh, what is this baby wearing expertise? 
<laughs> yeah, I didn't know that was even an in, like a baby wearing expert. At first, I didn't know that thing existed. But okay, <laughs> there we go. It does. The baby wearing expert exists. Uh, yeah, turning on the screw says it's a shakedown. Here's the problem. They've they got so many people speaking about college, right? They have so many people with thousands and thousands of dollars of student loans and crappy degrees that they have to have something for them to do. Uh, and so this is an, I know, uh, why don't you yell at people who make baby Bjorns about how they're not African enough or Chinese enough or whatever the hell, or that looks like Japanese, doesn't matter. Go yell at them for cultural appropriation. Yell at the baby Bjorn people. That can be a full-time job. In fact, we'll make it a panel. We'll have, we'll put five of you together and you can all stand over the shoulder of the one dude whose part-time job is to design baby Bjorns and scream at him. That'll be, that'll be great. Uh, we have a super chat. Marby dog says, if you have twins and they are both racist, do you have rabies? <laughs> 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 yes. <Dad> joke 101. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. Marby dog. Thank oh, Tara T's got one too. You want to read hers? Oh, you go ahead. She says, as the unsafe knitters always say, when some woke person gets upset about something an unwoke person does, usually Hobby Lobby, there is no, there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, right? It's like, did you know that other cultures walked? <laughs> Your walking is an appropriation. Uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty ridiculous. I, I, I am at a loss sometimes. I don't, it's, it's like, it's, it's like someone asks, it's like, imagine being a math teacher mm -hmm. and someone walks in and they're like, and they scream at you and they're like, you know, green jello plus ants is a frog. And it's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I can't argue with you. You are absolutely fucking insane. Like, why is anyone listening to you? Uh, <laughs> that's where we are right now. It is clown world. So maybe, yeah, maybe your clown uniform idea is good. Um, I've, I've had that, that feeling lately as well. Occasionally when I just am get getting tired sometimes of having to address things that are so absurd, because I think as, so, so when we first started the show a couple years ago, the absurdity wasn't at this pitch yet. Do you know what I mean? Not quite. Of, I mean, it was, it was quite. bad, but it wasn't like this. It wasn't yeah. so mainstream, first of all, and it wasn't as absurd. I think both of those things are probably true. And now it's like yes. mainstream and it's it's ridiculous off the charts and the projection is off the charts. So I saw something this morning where, for example, it's a leftist person who this was on Twitter. If I can find it, I'll send it to you. But it's a leftist person who was saying, oh, the conservatives are out of control, trying to redefine words and come up with new words I've seen like, this. did you yeah. see that yeah. they said you know for yeah. example conservatives are trying to come up with a legal alien and it's like no, yeah i saw that dude, like a legal alien was the first phrase we used and actually you know it's projection because because woke ideology is it's so much of it is based on them successfully controlling people by controlling language when i was woke one of the big campaigns I was a part of is we were all trying to make uh, replace the phrase illegal alien with the phrase undocumented American. Right. That was a concerted right. effort. And I would say we succeeded to a large degree in the media anyway. Yeah. 
I mean, the idea that the conservatives have been so actually, I think one of the one of the biggest successes of the left is convincing people that they're that the that conservative boogeymen are a thing, like that they have any power. That conservatives have done literally anything, really. They're, the conservatives are so ineffectual um, because they've been so unprincipled for so long that they don't they don't accomplish squat ever. But the left is like makes them out to be this very powerful boogeyman. <laughs> I mean, if conservatives are the thing stopping you, you're unstoppable. And actually, they have been unstoppable. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't even know. I don't know. I don't know how to respond to some of this stuff sometimes, Carrie. I'd... Well, because it's frustrating. It's It feels like a losing. You know what it is? It's a form of DARVO. It is a form of deny mm. and reverse victim order. Projection is yes. a form of DARVO. And they're doing that on a large scale where they're saying, you're, they're basically accusing you of doing the thing that they're doing. And it's right, frustrating. We, like, yeah, because the inmates are in charge now, right? Like yeah. we're we're the, the the inmates in the asylum are in charge. So like it's these people literally. I'm not saying that this person, whoever wrote this, Jennifer Lee. I'm not saying that Jennifer Lee is clinically insane. But what I'm saying is there's a there the mentality of the culture which she's representing with this article is insane. It's it's a yeah. form of insanity. It's it's dysfunctional psychologically. It's it's wrong. It's not just wrong like not factually correct. It's broken. It's yeah. it's like it's a broken psychology. And it's like and everywhere you turn, it's people with broken psychologies making wild statements about the world. It's 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 it is like living in bizarre world. Can you imagine if you woke up one day and suddenly Everyone, everyone, well, not well, someone, everyone, everyone in charge was a Zeus worshiper and like acting like it was completely normal and obvious and clearly this is what Zeus wants and blah, blah, blah. And Zeus is in a fight with Hera and these stupid conservatives don't know. Like you would think that you you're in a dream. You would think that mm -hmm. you're crazy. And that's where we are. It, they are yeah. broken on a mass scale. There's there's no. You can't argue with Jennifer Lee about this. This is a person who decided to write an article like this. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's just, she's got to go take her medication. That's, yeah. I mean, you can offer them medication. That's about all you can do or separate yourselves from them. It is so. crazy making to the degree that it's at now, I guess, where how absurd it is. That's why I sometimes feel like this isn't a pointless fight. I mean, this is a pointless fight. Not all of the battles are pointless, but some of them are. And so sometimes I'll see something that's so absurd. Like I just sent you the, the uh, both of you, the tweet I was talking about earlier. And I'll see something like that where I don't even know where to start because the worldview is so upside down and it's, it's the exact opposite of what's happening. So this is a tweet oh, that right. says, um, who is this person? It's a blue check mark. Sunny. It doesn't matter. Sunny Hostin. It doesn't matter. It says, how the right wing uses language as a weapon. Okay, that's why. That's what the le that's what social justice leftists do. Um, also, the right right wing is so bad at using language yes. as a weapon. I don't even it's like really. Yes, they're failing. How the cripple guy wins races all the time. Yes, I don't think so. How the right wing uses language as a weapon from quote illegal alien 
to, quote, states' rights to, quote, politically correct and now, quote, woke. The Republicans have perfected the art of language devoid of concrete specifics, but charged with big feels. That's everything that they do. It's a complete projection. Yeah. It's a complete projection. And so at a certain point, it gets frustrating because what happens is now, now, now I've, I've dealt with this on an individual level as well with someone using Darvo against me. And, and on a certain level, you're like, even to engage with it legitimizes it to some degree. And right. that's what they want because you're legitimizing it. And so I look at something like this and it's like, I don't even feel like writing an article that shows how this is bullshit is worth it because then you're legitimizing this person in this completely upside down worldview. Like I don't, yes. I, yeah. You know, yeah, there's like, no reason. Okay. And and no one, and we're, we are at a point in the culture that no one who's not in the woke cult would look at that and go, that seems like a reasonable statement. Like no one believes that. Yeah. Like not, you don't have to be like, no one believes that. No, no, no normie, even if they're not right wing, no normie looks at that and goes, yeah, the right has done that. They're really good at like, no one, no one thinks that no one, no one. Thinks that. only his friends think that. And so the, the goal, I think, I think it is a little bit of fishing. I think the goal is to get you to engage as if that's a legitimate statement, right? Um, you know, it's like standing up and like standing up yeah. and accusing Carrie of like, Hey, Carrie, you have to stop ax murdering people. Yeah. Like if you like legitimately write an article about how I'm really not an ax murderer and that's not how it goes. And you're the ax murderer. It's like, Oh, now there's a question about whether Carrie's an ax murderer. Really? You just oh, need yeah. to be like, you're insane. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> like Bye. there's no. Yeah, and so I've been feeling that a little bit more lately with, with some of this stuff, too, is that it's reached such a crazy level of absurdity and of Darvo and projection and that it's like not even worth engaging with some of it. And that's new for yeah. me, you know, because I've always been sort of, let's engage, let's point out how it's wrong, let's talk to people who disagree, and let's try to bring, let's try to wake up more woke people. And, and I don't know, I need to be, I need to have my batteries recharged a little. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah. It, and it's tiring because you're always on the defensive, right? You need to just be focused on projecting out. And I don't mean projecting psychologically. I mean focused on on demonstrating what's the path forward and what should we be yeah. doing and stop. And what do you believe stop. in? Yeah, right. Um, hey, individualism. Individualism's great. Here's why. Here's how it's been successful in the past. Here's why it's better for everyone, including uh, including quote marginalized groups, including everyone. It's better for everyone. Here's how it's more just. Here's how it's more fair. Here's how it makes everything more prosperous. Like, hey, that's the that's the path forward. Here's how in the past, when individualism was tried, it worked. And here's how collectivism is horrible and unjust. And mm -hmm. the idea of social justice is an inherent contradiction in in terms. Um, you know, and and here's the path. Here's like I said, here's the path forward, which you know, for someone like me, might involve secession. But other people can have a different vision that they paint. That's fine. Um, oh, you know what was interesting, Carter? What? I met at the Better Discourse Conference. I also met Chad Prather. Do you know who he is? He's this no. guy in Texas who's running for governor who supports putting Texit up for a vote. Or like oh, he's, he's, he's actually open to discussing Texit. I think he's a comedian who's running. But I've seen some of his posts. I've been, I, I only recently became aware of this dude. And I was like, wow, I agree with this guy. It's 
comedian running for governor and uh and he was there and so i i just thought that was interesting i also i want to have a discussion since we're we just read text for book club and i know you and i are going to talk to the author uh soon i also want to talk with some people who oppose Texas and oppose states leaving the union who we respect and, and agree with on a lot of other things, because I want to hear their arguments. And I found someone who, uh, who actual justice warrior, Sean Fitzgerald, he does not agree with right. a secession right. movement. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. Sorry, I'm getting, yeah. I'm off subject. Yeah, no, that's, I think it's fine. I mean, my, my, we don't have to get into secession, so but yeah. we can talk about it another time. Um, I do want to do a, I do want to just point out one thing that I, just one last little story. It's not a big deal, but uh, Beverly, can you go in and look at the Elon Musk's response to the World Food Program thing? So there's an original post, like pull that one up first. So the World Food Program is a, um, it's a program from the United Nations. Uh, oh, I saw this. Yeah, ostensibly <laughs> to end hunger, I guess, or... Um, Oh, it's gonna. She says it's gonna take her a minute. I'll see if I can do it. Um, because she's having an issue. Hold on. Didn't they put him on the spot? Like they basically specifically well, called out Elon Musk. Yeah. So so and 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 actually, it came through a uh, CNN business covered it. So let me let me see if I can. Actually, I don't know if I can. Oh, well, yeah, I can do this way. I'll do this way. You won't see us on screen, but that's okay. And I will make it so that you can see the whole thing. Okay. So uh, there's a CNN business article. I'm showing you the screenshot of it before I show that you the article because the article is actually, the title is actually stealth edited. This is the original title. The original title is 2% of Elon Musk's wealth could solve world hunger, says director of UN Food Scarcity Organization. So that's, that's what the original that's what the original article said. And Elon, being Elon, just called them out. And he writes, well, if the World Food Program can describe on this Twitter thread exactly how $6 billion will solve world hunger, I will sell Tesla stock right now and do it. Uh, but it must be open source accounting. So the public sees precisely how the money is spent. Can you guess whether they responded positively to that or not? <laughs> I saw, this is how much I saw. I never saw if they replied. So I get to guess. Um, I don't think they supplied the accounting. Did they? They did not. They offered to show him in person, but not publicly. Um, and then I just want to show you this stealth. After this whole transaction, they changed um, the They changed the headline to, oh, Jesus, freaking ads. Can you even, I don't know how to get rid of this ad. I don't want to learn more. Whatever. They changed the headline to this thing down here. 2% of Elon Musk's wealth could help solve world hunger. Oh, that's different. Because remember, the other one said could solve world hunger. Now it could help solve world hunger. Actually, it couldn't solve world hunger. It could help. And of course, that's true. A dollar could help solve world hunger. <laughs> Everything is helpful. So, yeah. <laughs> They stealth edited it and changed what he said. Um, What's the difference between saying a 
a dollar could solve world hunger and a dollar could help solve world hunger, Carter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's one like, word. It's just right. one word. Yeah. I think Audrey Hepburn was telling me that for years. Like, yeah, my co- the price of a co- cup of coffee could help solve world hunger. Yeah. It could help. Um, <laughs> now, actually, a lot of these things, uh, what they spend the money on. By, by the way, I'm not going to go through this, but someone ended up doing then like an audit of like their, their eight, I think they had like $8 billion revenue and only like two billion of that went to actually <laughs> like most of it was overhead they people started publishing details of the world food program um and I it think, just reminded me go ahead well i think four billion of it probably goes to the diversity inclusion and equity committee for the world hunger <laughs> to oversee how and the oversee yeah. how it's being spent <laughs> yeah. you can i know you can solve world hunger but you, you shouldn't do it in a racist way uh, we need to make sure that it's an anti-racist world hunger solving. Um, it reminds me, so years ago, I met these guys. I think they were billionaires. They were brothers. I'm pretty sure they were billionaires. They were from Russia. Yes, Russia collusion. Here we go. Here's my Russian ties. Uh, I forgot they were from Russia. But this was like, I don't know. It's probably 10, 12 years ago. It's a long time ago. Uh, and they were interested in doing this startup. And they, I helped them out a little bit with some ideas for it and stuff. And I ended up, I was busy. I didn't. I didn't get involved, but what they wanted to do was they wanted to make a bank that was completely transparent. Like all the transactions for every account was completely transparent, and it was it was for um, government organizations, governments, and and um, charities to use, so that if you banked with this bank, everyone could see what you did all the time because and and like they had a, this whole method to it where how they would make it easy to search and look for stuff and blah 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 and like um and you know distill the data and but and and make it easy for people to come in and like audit and figure out like oh what's this charity doing and uh it fell flat on its face because really? none of the customers want this bank yeah they, they were very excited about it because they were like this would be great and i was like yes this would be great except for none of your customers want this like, the government no doesn't want you to this. see where they're spending <laughs> right. money yeah like, but they were like the but young... local governments could use it and then there would be accountability i'm like yes they could so they won't they won't they don't want accountability like, what's your hot um, dog budget this year you know? <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly so i do i still like the idea um and if uh like I would push it if I were, you know, in a local government or something, and be like, "Hey, let's do this thing." Let's. In fact, if you were going to rewrite the constitution, that would be an interesting rewrite, uh, right? But everything <laughs> has really... to be transparent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in fact, if you were going to re—not that I'm like the government involvement in this stuff—but if you were going to rewrite uh, rules for nonprofits uh, for for getting tax exempt status, one of those rules might be 100% transparency. Anyone public can see what you're spending your money on. Yeah. Uh, How is it that the government thinks they should be able to look at into our private bank accounts, the bank accounts of private citizens, for anything that's over six hundred dollars? Well, you might be a terrorist, to... Carrie. Okay, but <laughs> we don't get to look at what they're doing, and they literally like they work. They're supposed to be working for us and representing us, and we're paying their salary. We pay them. Are they supposed to be to work for us? Actually, no, we don't. Uh, our grandchildren pay their salary. Right, that's true. At some massive inflation rate. Like, right. our grandchildren pay multiples of their salary because all their salary was borrowed from China or wherever else. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, we have one more super chat, and then I could probably call it a day. Rebecca P says, "Green Jello plus ants is a toad." You're a racist. Misspelled for YouTube. Uh, yes, that is the uh, that would that is Rebecca. That is the proper response. Um, so good job, you win. Oh, I love you guys too. <sighs> Ross Trevor says, "I love you guys." I like hanging out with you guys. It's been a it's everybody. I don't know about you guys, but Carter and I have both been busy for different reasons. And uh, it's nice to just sit down and chill and have a conversation with, with everybody. So, yeah. Anyway. Um, all right. Well, we can take I think off. we're done for the day. I don't see anyone. Well, just a, just a reminder. Two hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just a reminder. If you guys want to su- help support the show financially, you can go to unsafespace.com to the donate page um you can subscribe you can do a dollar a month if you do 25 dollars a month or more you get one of our grenade mugs which oh i haven't packed it yet i got it too yeah look grenade mug yeah grenade mug uh also it's not an actual grenade it's not an actual grenade but it will get you stopped at the airport if you want to like and subscribe you can do that in fact you must subscribe it's now mandatory we have a mandate and uh, we will get you fired if you don't subscribe remember think of the children and the public good nobody else's subscription works unless yours work unless you subscribe so um hit that button and book club is coming up the handmaid's tale by margaret atwood which we're going to be discussing roundabout when is it a few 21st weeks? of november right about the 21st right about of november day. Yeah. And yeah. I'll get my camera fixed by then. And uh, anyway, I hope you join us. Go to the book club page. It's free to join. It's free to participate in our book club. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye, Carrie. Have a good oh, wait, one. Carter. Wait, wait, wait. Oh. One second. Hold on. Oh. Oh. Okay. Now we wait. Carrie has an exciting thing she's going to bring us. This is Teddy. Oh. <laughs> I just want to show you. Because he came running in here. He wanted to say hi. Okay. Bye, guys. Bye, Carter. <sighs> that was anticlimactic. All right. Sorry. I mean, not for some people. I didn't, at least I didn't have any papoose. <laughs> yeah. Wrap them up first. Appropriate some culture first next time. All right. Bye, guys. <laughs> Later. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy, so go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now. And you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. For your protection, the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and scheduled for ideological vaccination. To avoid cancellation, please update your ideological contact tracing app on your smart device immediately. Here's a fun fact. 
only vaccinated Black Lives Matter. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks at the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.